Hello, everybody. This is Jennifer Matteris, and before I get started with the second episode of the day, I would just like to take care of the housekeeping I already took care of earlier in the morning. If you've been wanting to hear a particular disaster on the podcast, you can do so for a $25 or more donation to the podcast's PayPal account at disasterareaatmail.com. Just add the disaster you'd like to hear about to the notes of your donation, and I'll add it to the list. Just bear with me in regards to returning any sort of reply because I'm actually pretty terrible about that. Normally when it comes to requests, I do them when and if I can, but this will mean I will definitely cover the topic you request as soon as I can finish the research for it. Just keep in mind if it's a bigger disaster, it may take me a little longer or a lot longer, and I'm also working two jobs right now, so things are a little hectic around here. The subject for this particular episode was requested by Lisa, and I'd like to thank her for the request and for the donation. If you'd like to help support the podcast in another way, you can do so with a one-time donation through PayPal at disasterareaatmail.com or on a per-episode basis through Patreon at www.patreon.com slash disasterareapodcast. A per-episode donation of even as little as a dollar an episode can help me do things like keep the lights on and put gas in my car and buy treats for the puppy so that he's distracted while I'm trying to do this. So if you do become a patron, I would very much appreciate it. You can also follow the podcast on Facebook at Disaster Area Podcast or on Twitter and Instagram at Disaster Area Pod. And please think about rating and reviewing the podcast on iTunes or Stitcher or Podcast Addict or wherever else you might listen to this particular podcast on. And as always, the sources for each new episode can be found at disasterareapodcast.wordpress.com. With all of that taken care of, me and the professor, thank you very much for listening and welcome to Disaster Area. Episode 119, The Balvano Train Disaster, March 2nd and 3rd, 1944, 500 to 650 deceased, 90 injured. Apparently it's war month here at Disaster Area, first with the battles in the Gulf, which led to the shootdown of Iran Air Flight 655, then the two-decade-long war during the dying days of which the Carolean Death March occurred. Now we're about to dive headfirst into World War II, years into the fighting on European soil with the end of the war on the continent a little over a year away. World War II features so many disastrous events, from the sinking of the overloaded German refugee ship, the Wilhelm Gustloff, to the attack on Pearl Harbor, which brought the United States into the war, to the overwhelming horrors of the Holocaust and what happened within the Nazi camps. There could probably be a whole podcast solely devoted to disasters which occurred during the Second World War, shipwrecks and bombings, failed escapes from prison camps and concentration camps, massacres and other terrors. So sometimes lesser known tragedies slip through the cracks. We remember so many of those lost in a war like that, that some disasters are either seen as just another price of war or after a while not seen at all. In a tiny village in southern Italy, just such a tragedy happened during the war, a tragedy which doesn't play out quite the way you would think. The small town of Balvano sits in the province of Potenza in the Basilicata region of southern Italy, nestled among the Apennine Mountains. 
On a personal note, Potenza is just to the west of the province of Matera, featuring a bustling capital city of the same name, which has been around for nearly 2,000 years, and both of which were the original source of my last name. Balvano, on the other hand, currently has a population of only about 1,800 people, but clearly the town's been around for centuries. One only needs to look up at the top of one of the nearby hillsides in Balvano, where an ancient castle still sits, albeit a little worn from the passing years. In 1944, however, Balvano was just another place in Italy, and throughout Europe, suffering from the uh, expanding effects of a prolonged war on a beleaguered continent. As the winter of 1943 into 1944 began to fade, one thing that only got worse was the famine. People throughout the countryside around Balvano were on the verge of starvation. Much like the previous episode, which saw Norwegians during the Great Northern War already struggling to keep fed, even without the Swedish army shaking them down for anything edible they might have as they passed through their villages, plenty of small towns in Italy and in many other places in Europe were feeling the pinch of the war's impact on agriculture. It's hard to plow a field when the Allies and the Nazis are having a battle on it. This meant bringing in supplies. But for that, the people of Balvano and the neighboring areas would need the Allies. By March of 1944, the Allies had landed in Sicily and proceeded to take control of southern Italy away from the Nazis and from the hands of the fascists in charge of the Italian government. This would have been fine if only wartime restrictions weren't in place in different ways. For example, traveling during this time was a nightmare. If you wanted to go by train, you needed a special permit. Not only that, but only so many people were allowed to use the trains per week. If you got a call your mother was dying and you didn't have a permit, you might just miss seeing her before she goes. Because of this, sneaking onto freight trains to try and get where you wanted to go became a more normal way of getting from place to place. It obviously wasn't legal, but what choice did people have than to take the risk of hopping a moving train and hoping the railway authorities didn't catch you? Then again, given the prevalence of train-hopping travelers at that time, some railway bosses simply spotted their interlopers and kept on walking. Number 8017, a freight train out of Naples every Friday night, would be passing through the railway station in Balvano on March 2nd of 1944. Waiting for a passenger train wasn't a good option for anyone those days. Years of war meant plenty of passenger trains had been bombed to pieces over the course of the war, and in southern Italy, the Allies took over control of the passenger trains that were left and all the good supplies needed to run them. People were desperate. With regular passenger trains only going through the area twice a week, hitching a ride on a freight train instead didn't sound like that bad of an idea. They were hungry, and if they could get to a part of the countryside where they could buy butter, chicken, eggs, olive oil, or whatever else they could find, a little discomfort would pay off. They might even be able to get enough to spare some they could sell on the black market, making a little extra money during these tough times, or trade what they brought back with Allied servicemen for other items they might not otherwise be able to find. Times were so tough, some women even opted to go into sex work just to have the money to buy food for their kids. So you only have a freight train to ride on? You get on the freight train. Number 8017, which had come to be known as the Black Market Express, consisted of 42 freight cars, four passenger cars, and a caboose. The head engineer was 25-year-old Matteo Giuliani, a well-respected engineer in spite of his young age. 
he would be running one of the two locomotives, the 480.016 and the 476.058, both of which combined could pull over 500 tons up the steep inclines throughout the Apennine Mountains. That night, the train itself weighed about 520 tons, and for good reason. As the train passed through the area, plenty of people hopped aboard the freight cars, hoping for a free ride. Surprisingly enough, there were even a few paying customers. By the time the train would depart Balvano Station, anywhere from five to 700 people would be crammed on board. But by 6 p.m., the train was reaching the town of Eboli on the, uh, to the west of Balvano, where some of the non-paying customers in the freight cars were asked to get off, presumably for safety reasons. But when the train left Eboli at about 7 o'clock, more people scrambled on board the freight cars as it passed. At about 12.12 a.m., the train reached the Balvano station. Its weight was already 11 tons over the safe weight for the two locomotives at the front of the train to handle in this mountain terrain. Then, at 12.50 a.m. on the morning of March 3rd, the station manager gave the all-clear, and the train pushed off and left Balvano. The station manager then called the next stop at Bellamuro to inform them number... 8017 had departed from its station uh, from his station on its 8 kilometer trip to their station. After the call was over, the station manager left as well, leaving his assistant in control of Balvano station. The tracks between Balvano and Balamuro wound around gorges, through tunnels and over bridges, and up and up when you were on your way to Balamuro. It was just an uphill climb the whole way. The tracks rose 13 centimeters every 1,000 meters on this trip, which doesn't sound like a lot when you're not really an engineer, but it was enough of an incline to present a challenge to the train. To do so, to get up this incline, engineer Giuliani encouraged the men in charge of shoveling coal into the fires to add more for the push up the tracks. When the passengers boarded the Black Market Express, whether they were regular paying customers or those who had hopped aboard and jumped into the freight cars, many of them did just what you would do on an overnight train ride or a red-eye flight. They went to sleep. The ride was rough and shaky with the rain pouring down outside. It's the middle of the night, but they needed their rest and they had food waiting for them at the end of the ride, or at least they hoped they did. At a certain point, the train entered the Galleria della Armi tunnel, a mile-long tunnel with a steep gradient. The tunnel ran long and deep through the mountain in such a way as to prevent the addition of ventilation, which would provide fresh air while inside it. This made the Army tunnel particularly dangerous to go through. Part of the way up the steep slope of the train tracks, the struggling train stopped. Now, depending on which source you look at, either it just couldn't pull the weighted down train any farther up the steep incline and actually needed to be braked so it wouldn't keep sliding down the hill, or it stopped to allow another train which was having difficulties to come down the tracks. Both stories have come up as a reason for why the freight train sat in the tunnel, its last few cars still outside in the fresh air. But in number 8017's two steam-powered locomotives, smoke and fumes still poured forth from the burning coal. If the train hadn't stalled inside the tunnel or stopped this intentionally, this might not have been a problem. But a train inside a tunnel with any sort of fire burning inside it is more of a hazard than those inside those cars might even realize. 
Yes, you might be able to leave, but then what? On November 11th, 2000, skiers visiting the resort town of Caprun in Austria discovered the hard way that getting out of the train in such a steep tunnel space is only the first step. Caprun featured a funicular-style train system which had been updated and modernized only seven years earlier. For those of you who don't know, a funicular train features two different trains on a sloping set of tracks, which work sort of like counterweights. One one goes down the mountain, the other is pulled up, and vice versa. Capron's trains ran constantly as skiers ascended to the Kitsteinhorn Glacier at the top of the mountain. On that November 11th, 150 people or so loaded themselves onto the ascending train, eager to get up there and reach the slopes. But as the train rose, a hidden danger threatened them all. The electric fan heater in the train's rear cabin caught fire, burning through hydraulic pipes and causing the train to stop in the center of the tunnel leading up to the top. The fire continued to burn, and those inside the train soon realized the danger they were in. At this point, people struggled to escape, fighting to break through glass specifically meant not to be broken and wherever else they could get out of uh, the now burning funicular. But of those who escaped, where to next? Many of those who got out simply headed up toward when they, where they'd been going in the first place. But at the lower end of the train, a man who'd long been a volunteer fireman stopped a group of 11 people and kept them from doing the same thing. No, he said, we need to go down, not up. Trust me. They did, and the, th the 12 of them carefully made their way down the steep slope of the tracks, made all the more awkward considering they were doing it in ski boots and presumably scared the entire time that the burning train might break and come careening down after them. It didn't. Those 12 people managed to make it out of the tunnel alive. They were the only ones. But what are the others? Well, if they could escape, the Caprun skiers went up instead of down. This included as many as could get out of the ascending train, but not the conductor in the descending train, which was also in the tunnel at this point, along with the sole passenger who decided to go back down with him. Up above in the Alpine Center where the tunnel emerged, employees and customers were urged to flee the building as soon as they spotted the smoke from the tunnels, but in their haste to leave, they left the exit door open, encouraging the growth of the thick black smoke by the uh, entrance of oxygen. Now, think about a fireplace in your house. If you were to sit down on a cold winter's night, make hot chocolate, and get ready to curl up with a good book or a Christmas movie, you might start a fire in the fireplace to set the mood. But if you prepare it correctly, why does your house not fill with smoke? Because the smoke goes up. Everyone who decided to walk up the Capron train tracks, the two people in the other train, and three people still in the Alpine Center up above died as a result of the fire and the toxic smoke being spewed forth from the burning train. We also saw this same effect in the Mont Blanc tunnel fire. Fire and smoke and the toxic gases that go with them can only go so far in a tunnel like that, depending on the angle of, a ton of the tunnel, the direction of the air moving through it, etc. So in that case, nearly all of the deaths were on one side of the Mont Blanc tunnel as opposed to both sides. Meanwhile, in the Army Tunnel in 1944, the wheels on the number 8017 struggled to gain a grip on the wet tracks. 
The train was long and heavy, loaded with passengers, and trying to pull it out of the tunnel at that point was like trying to get your bald tires to pull your loaded down station wagon up over an iced over 60 degree angle street in January. I'm not speaking from complete experience. I have never owned a station wagon. Uh, but my t- my hometown is on the side of a, a hill and some of the uh, streets in this town are very, very steep. So the train idled in the tunnel, unable to move from where it sat, the brakeman having stopped the train with only two cars and the caboose still outside. However, while it sat there in the tunnel, the passengers inside the train were slowly dying, one right after the other. The still-running locomotive engines gave off something which made this particular pit stop a deadly one. Carbon monoxide. Engineer Giuliani told his crew to load the fireboxes with more coal, more coal, and more coal, all in an effort to make it move up the mountain and get out of that tunnel. As the engines poured forth smoke, they also poured forth that deadly carbon monoxide, a byproduct of the burning coal. Those who were awake moved away from the smoke, trying to move farther back in the train. Some covered their mouths as they developed a nasty cough. At the rear of the train, a brakeman who was hanging onto the caboose climbed off and began to walk into the tunnel to go toward the front of the train to see what was wrong. He didn't get far. The choking poisonous smoke staggered him and he soon ducked back out again. It wouldn't be until around 2.30 in the morning uh, of March 3rd when people would start to question where freight train number 8017 was. The assistant station manager at Balbano contacted Bella Murrow looking for confirmation that number 8017 had arrived, but received none. The number 8025 train showed up at Balbano not long after this, and the assistant station manager opted to take their locomotive and search the tracks for some sign of number 8017. At about the time men were working to unhook the locomotive from number 8025, the brakeman from the caboose of number 8017, the one who entered the army tunnel only to go back out once he realized the dangers inside, stumbled down the tracks, mumbling, They're dead. They're all dead. Afraid of what they would find, a search party donned gas masks and started up the tracks, arriving four hours after the number 8017 entered the army tunnel in the first place. Those who followed the train tracks up up to the tunnel were greeted with a horrific sight. Number 8017 was packed with the dead. Hundreds of men, women, and children sprawled lifeless in seats and on the floors of the train's cars. The tunnel reeked of sulfur. The head engineer still sat in his seat, as though frozen in place, still waiting for his train to be ready to leave. Some people did manage to get out of the train and passed out on the ground just outside, many of them still alive when the search party arrived. Some others who covered their faces, either intentionally or with blankets before they fell asleep that night, still showed signs of life as well. The locomotive, which had been detached from number 8025, was now used to pull number 8017 all the way back to the Balvano station. There, officials from the military and police, as well as everyday citizens, stepped up to remove the bodies from the stricken train. Doctors fought to save the ones still alive in the station's waiting room, with at least some successes. That wasn't to say that the ones who were still alive didn't have some sort of effect. Some of them suffered serious brain damage that affected them for the rest of their lives. 
According to the official account by the Italian government, 517 people died when freight train 8017 stalled in a tunnel on its way to uh, Bellamoro, Italy, and the toxic smoke it spewed poisoned them with carbon monoxide. Another source stated 426 people were killed by the poisoning. According to another more recent source I found, 626 people lie on the train overnight, waiting for rescue that wouldn't come until long after it was needed. 193 of the dead carried false papers or none at all, making identification impossible. Now, the reason there are different numbers for the deceased is understandable. There were plenty of reasons for the Allies and the Italians to fudge the numbers when it came to the tragedy's death toll. The tragedy later described as the Titanic of train disasters is probably one you've never heard of before, or at least not heard of until recently. Maybe not until the start of this episode. That's probably because of accusations that the Allies, the Italians, or both factions rushed to cover up the deaths in the tunnel. The Allies were the ones who freed the people of southern Italy from the grip of Mussolini. They saved these poor Italians crushed under the boot heels of a vicious dictator. They were supposed to be greeted with flowers and kisses and all kinds of thank yous for freedom. And then these Italians went and died on a freight train because under the Allies, they were still all starving. The optics wouldn't exactly have been all that great and morale was not that good anyway during a war. So spreading the news of a disaster which killed hundreds of people simply looking for food wouldn't have looked all that good. On the other hand, the Italian authorities had a prime excuse to pass the buck. After all, the Allies took that land. They invaded. They were the ones who liberated those towns. If those Italians were starving, it was the fault of the Allies, who apparently couldn't be bothered to get them the food they needed to survive. And it wasn't that great a loss anyway. Those on board, the Italian authorities claimed, hadn't bothered to buy tickets and were all smugglers and bootleggers. Between the Italians and the Allies pushing for the disaster to be be buried, only one newspaper wrote a story on the Balvano train accident. And that story didn't even make the major headlines. It was stuck deep inside the paper after other big war news of the day, easier to bypass after stories of bombings and genocide. There are several photos taken at the time which pop up when you Google the Balvano train disaster, and two of them show the deadening horror of the event quite plainly. In one, bodies are piled like cordwood lining the platform at the Balvano station from one end of the photo to the other. The platform itself is just from one end to, to, as far as you can see, it's just bodies lined up in a row. Some of them clearly two or three on top of each other. In the second picture, several bodies can be seen lying prone beside the train tracks. In the center of this photo, a woman lies on her back, her legs splayed, rigor mortis leaving her left arm slightly upward as though pointing accusingly at whatever might have caused her death. The Allies wanted to burn the bodies in one big pile, but the citizens of Balvano weren't having it. They stood their ground, and so the victims of the Balvano train disaster were instead buried en masse in four large graves in the town's graveyard. What followed after the disaster was one big finger-pointing contest, but not at each other. The Italians and the Allies both found an easy target to blame, eventually, the coal being used to run the locomotives. 
at the time, the type of coal being used was far from the best, but all that could be managed during the time of war when the military received all of the best coal available for their trains. Obtaining better quality coal was incredibly hard, so many railway companies figured the cheaper stuff would suffice, and so number 8017 used low-grade Yugoslavian coal instead of the good stuff. Ferrovi dello Stato Italiano, the railway company in charge of number 8017, would go on to argue that between the Italian government officials and the Allied forces which took over the area, finding out precisely who was responsible for that particular train would be incredibly difficult. I kind of feel after reading what I could about this particular disaster that that's not exactly a bad argument. It seemed a lot like the Italian authorities who, um, the ones who were still working with the um, uh, Mussolini's government and the allied forces who had invaded and taken over were sort of uh, still at loggerheads in many ways and, uh, you know, still kind of, um, you know, you really didn't know who was in charge of what. And so, so... Saying that they couldn't find out precisely who was responsible for that particular train or that it would have been very difficult. And I really couldn't see anything that said, you know, that person, we discovered that that person was in charge of that train. Clearly, there was a lot of confusion going on. And in wartime, who can who can blame them? The committee in charge of finding someone to blame for the accident eventually ruled it a force majeure, in other words, an act of God. Following the disaster, several new regulations were implemented, including a limit of 350 tons across the entire rail line. If a train needed two locomotives, one would need to be diesel and the other steam. And as for the army tunnel, a guard post was set up on a permanent basis, which would only let trains pass through once smoke from earlier trains had vented out of the tunnel. The guard post stood until steam trains were banned in 1959, and in 1996, the entire rail line was electrified, making the weight restrictions obsolete. Family members of the victims would eventually file over a billion lira, or $1.6 million, American in lawsuits, about 300 lawsuits in total. The Ministry of Treasury would eventually issue compensation to some of some sort to all of the known victims of the disaster, uh, their families, just the same as if they were any other civilian casualty of the war. It would take them over 15 years to get around to it, but they did pay it out. If there was any memory of the accident to be shared, it was buried well enough decades later when a 1980 earthquake did extensive damage in Italy, including to Balvano. The town lost dozens of citizens, and with the memory of that disaster more fresh in their minds, the previous disaster suffered at Balvano uh, fell by the wayside. Two years ago, however, a ceremony attended by local authorities and politicians, as well as family members of those who lost their lives in the Balvano train disaster, ended with the laying of an engraved stone at the Balvano station, so that the memory of that particular accident could be uh, kept going. A memorial chapel also stands in Balvano, built by a relative of uh, two of the deceased, Salvatore Aventurado. The chapel features an eerie engraving, one of a train entering a mountain tunnel as the skeletal hand of death reaches out for it from above. This is another disaster that I had never heard of before. Um... It was actually um, a disaster that um, 
understandably, it slipped through the cracks. And you can see that with a lot of the information that's in the episode. Um, I got several sources and all of those sources kind of conflicted with one another in multiple ways. And it's understandable because if you have two different groups kind of trying to, you know, cover their ass, um, you have all of this information that's being buried and it's wartime. So, of course, they're trying to bury it because of that. Nobody wants to take responsibility. So, you know, let's just forget it ever happened. Let's just put it aside, get rid of these bodies and let's just forget it all happened. I have a really hard time um, imagining what the families of those deceased must have gone through because you lose somebody that you love in a manner that is absolutely just awful. It's just absolutely terrible. They were trying to do something to help their family, to get them food, even if it meant breaking the rules or, you know, hopping a train, doing something that might potentially be dangerous. And anyway, and then they die because of carbon monoxide poisoning, you know, that's something that comes out of nowhere. When I said train disaster, I'm sure that many of you thought that there was some sort of crash, which is why I said at the beginning that this might not end the way you think it would. And so this particular incident uh, ending with the train uh, giving off enough carbon monoxide that everybody, um, that so many people died is, um, you know, it's kind of this twist on the ending you know not exactly a fun twist but uh a twist nonetheless it's something that is just you know it's kind of upsetting the fact that you can have a disaster like this or 500 people die 600 people die however many hundreds of people died and you can't really nail that down because there are different sources for this there's an episode of disasters of the century which is a uh, documentary series out of canada which is um you know they do have a lot of uh interviews with um people who survived the accidents and who survived these disasters and they cover disasters that i've seen a, a lot of other disaster documentary shows not cover so it's pretty interesting in that way but it's also made for like five bucks to the point where a lot of the fonts that are used for the credits are papyrus which anybody who knows anything about fonts is just going oh really but um (laughs) but that one said 426 uh wikipedia says that the official count from the italian government is about 517 um there's ones that say 521 there's a more recent article that said 626 I mean, there's so many numbers that come up. And with so many people on that train, you really didn't have a head count. You didn't have tickets sold for everybody. You didn't have um, people who were carrying their papers or, you know, who were traveling under false identification so that they could go from one place to another. Um, And so because of that, you have so much confusion. So much of these this story was um, covered up and and so much of it was secret that the fact that I could make anything out of this was a little surprising just because not that there wasn't any information out there, but the information that is out there is kind of at cross purposes to itself. 
So, so, um, what I have is it was good enough for half an hour. Um, (laughs) uh, but you know, this is one of those things where, um, like I said at the beginning of the episode, somehow I didn't realize until I started writing this particular uh, script that I had focused on uh, disasters this particular month that happened during wartime, uh, or during battles between different countries um and uh because of that you know you see these disasters that you know they really it's not soldiers on a battlefield it's somebody shooting down a passenger plane full of people who have nothing to do with the particular battle being fought you have soldiers who are between battles they're not really fighting at this point unless they're attacked they're just trying to get home and they freeze to death on the mountain you have people here who they're citizens they're not members of the military these are not members of the military or um people who are you know um government officials or or you know these aren't big wigs these are just regular people who don't have any food and they're trying to get from one place to another to try and find some food and something like this happens and these disasters are all things where i mean it, with the carolian death march uh and the balvano train disaster i'd never heard of them before because they're the kind of disasters that you don't hear about during wartime they get um forgotten about because um you know places get bombed and uh you know dresden gets bombed um you know you find there are uh you know there are uh, ships that are sinking and there are planes that are crashing that are actually you know planes that have something to do with the um uh battle instead of uh you know a passenger jet you have um ships on fire like the uss forestall uh which is one of these stories that i'll have to get to one of these days um you have all sorts of stories that are bigger news because they're more involved with the the war so that stories in which um either civilians die in large numbers or uh, you know, in an accident, in a tragedy, in a disaster, it, something that happens during wartime, um, it kind of gets put by the wayside. It, as long as it's in the middle of the war, you have other disasters that happen in a place where the war is not happening, and and people kind of pause sometimes to, um, to. Uh, offer their condolences even though um you know it has nothing to do with the war i know at one point there was um i want to say that it's the new london school explosion in texas in which it was such a terrible explosion uh that um and it happened at a time when hitler actually made a point of going into the newspapers and offering his condolences like that's the kind of thing we're talking about like the disasters that happen in a place where there's you know where the war is not happening where 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 there is no war and and over here there's war starting or there's war happening you know then they can kind of pause when war is happening in one place and a disaster happens there it can kind of get glossed over by the fact that you know over there there's you know there's a battle going on well over here like a plane crashed 
full of, you know, school students. Oh, you know, we that's not exactly big news right now. We're focused on, you know, these big bombings. And especially now with the, um, with, uh, you know, with the news and with, uh, you know, 24-hour news channels and, all, and the internet and all of these things, things like this um, might not slip under the radar as much as they used to. But at the same time, you know, CNN likes an explosion, you know, Fox News likes an explosion, MSNBC likes an explosion, and they like to see bombs, you know, and I'm not saying that in terms of they like a lot of people killed. They like something visual. Uh, you, want, you want something visual to show the people uh, on your uh, 24-hour news channel. And it's a little hard to do that with something like this. You know, it's... Uh, a lot of pe- times when they are showing these um, events that happened during war, they don't really want to talk about, uh, they want to talk about the war. They want people to be into the war. Uh, if you think back to World War One and the um, Spanish flu, when the Spanish flu first started, um, it, it, the first case, like the some of the first known cases happened here in America. Um, in a, um, I can't remember exactly the name of the fort, but I remember it was in Kansas. And there's a specific guy, I believe I mentioned in the Boston Molasses disaster episode, who he, he was one of the first people at that particular fort to kind of come in and say, I don't feel so good. And then like a day later, he was dead. And the thing is that the reason the Spanish flu is called the Spanish flu is because with everything that was going on in World War One they weren't allowing a lot of this news to get in the newspaper because it would bring down morale. So the last thing that a lot of these countries wanted was to put something in the newspaper that said, oh, by the way, while we're having this war, there's also this horrible disease that's going around. And so they stifled it. Uh, And Spain, which didn't have those same restrictions, was posting news about, hey, there's this flu that's going around that's really, really serious and it's killing a lot of people. And so that's how it got the name the Spanish influenza because they were the first to kind of put it out there in the news or at least um, as far as I remember, that's the, that's the main gist of that story. But that's the thing. Wartime restrictions on media and what can be said and what can't be said allow for a lot of things to be hidden and covered up. And in this particular instance, the death of hundreds of people who were just looking for food uh, was allowed to be covered up. And it's terribly sad. And I think we should all just take a minute and think about them because for so many decades, a lot of people weren't thinking about them. Um, You know, and... Just to kind of, you know, honor their memory, you know, just think about them, go have some food um, and on them, uh, hopefully somewhere they will know what you're eating and they will, you know, you can eat it and hope that it it passes over to them and wherever they may be. Um, but... It, the thing about this particular podcast is the reason that I like doing a lot of these smaller disasters or disasters that I've never heard of before is because if I've never heard of them, you've never heard of them. And if uh, you more than likely haven't heard of them. And so, you know, these are people who need to be remembered. 
they suffered a terrible tragedy and they lost their lives. And sometimes we remember them and sometimes we don't. And the ones that get remembered get remembered a lot. Uh, look at 9-11. I'm not saying that that is a bad thing that we remember those who were lost in 9-11. We should remember them. But we should also remember the people who were lost on the Titanic and who were lost in the Balvano train disaster and who were lost in the Shiloh Baptist church stampede and who were lost in the Kansas City Hyatt uh, Skyway collapse and who were lost in the Hartford Circus fire and all of these people, even if we don't remember them individually, just remembering what happened to them is honoring their memory. Um, and forgetting what happened to them, you know, it kind of leaves them behind. And so it's something that I, I really like about doing this project cast is being able to kind of, um, you know, show that, hey, these people were just trying to get by. And in the annals of history, they've kind of slipped through the cracks a little bit, I think. And so... Um, here on this train, these hundreds of people who passed away, um, today, you know, it's for them. Uh, go have a sandwich and think about any of those people on, on that train and, and, and you know what, just have, have some spaghetti, have some, have a sandwich, um, have some jambalaya, have whatever it is that you happen to like and hope that somewhere, wherever they are, they can taste it and they can enjoy it as well. So, um, I managed to squeeze out another episode today. That's two episodes in one day. Yay! Um, I'm so proud of myself. Um, uh, hopefully next month is going to be um, Chernobyl month. We're going to see. Uh, I'm going to see how much of that, that script I can get finished. Um, there's a lot of things going on this month. Um, I'm doing more work at one of my jobs, so that's a lot of work. And I am also trying to get a house, which we'll see how that works out. Um, that's kind of a load of stress on me. So, um, hopefully, um, I'll get it. And if I get it, then I'll actually have somewhere to record where cars aren't driving past my apartment at all hours. So, um, and if you heard the dog during the podcast, that's because he is walking around and just being generally disruptive and <laughs> cute, but disruptive as so, uh, until next time, stay safe. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.